10-5, he's into the end zone, touchdown Arkansas State. Deflected into the hands of Feltz, Avery for three, hits! Cover is safe, the Red Wolves have walked it off! Welcome to the Second to None Podcast, the A-State Podcast, presented by Simmons Bank. Now, here's a couple of guys who know the Red Wolves like no one else, Matt Stoltz and Brad Bobo. It's time once again for another Second to None podcast presented by Simmons Bank. A big show today. A little bit more positive than last week's show. We had to hopefully try to help you through some tough times last week. That was kind of the whole intent of that episode. But looking forward, uh, here in the next few minutes, we're going to be joined in studio by the new head volleyball coach, Brian Gerwig, and... This is a a fantastic human being, number one, a a very good volleyball coach. I know we're excited about that, but he's got a great story to tell, too. Yeah, and, um, you know, look, I'm not going to lie to you. There's some triumph and some tragedy in there. It's what's coming. If you don't know the story, you'll hear it. But uh, uh, the triumph's on the back end of it, and I'm thrilled that he's back, part of the A-State volleyball program. I got a call from our partner the other day philip butterfield and uh, he's getting ready for his second year on our broadcast with us he was coming up from little rock and he was going to spring practice and with with our baseball schedules and your show being Mm -hmm. in the afternoons during the week it's tough for us to get out to many of the spring practices but it worked out on thursday where he and i were able to go out and and watch spring practice and it's fun to be out at, at Centennial Bank Stadium again and and see some of the new guys out there. And I remember you and I kind of had the conversation right after we had the, the signing day uh, in February. There were so many of our players already on campus. In fact, it was something we had never seen before. So many of the signees were in there in the press conference. And because of the way it's set up now – with the transfer rules and and everything kind of the way it's lining up a lot more players that that are signed in whether it be the early signing period in December or all the way through February they can already be on campus for spring practice so we're able to get kind of an early look at a lot of the the new guys if you will on this A-state roster and even in a couple of cases some high school guys graduated early yeah. Um, and are here too. So, and I'm glad you guys got to. I got to live vicariously through you so you can <laughs> tell them a little bit about what you saw. Well, and I think a lot of what we were trying to do was get out there and, and see what was happening with that defensive front seven. One of the guys I wanted to see live was the Alabama transfer, King Makuda, who was, I think, one of the most hyped transfers in this class and you know he was a guy that was a linebacker at Alabama but we knew coming in he had a good chance at at moving to the defensive line and he's out there practicing at defensive end and he looks good uh, in that role and you know Thurman Gathers the former Louisville transfer who was here and, and saw some reps last year he was out there and looked good looked like he put on a little bit of weight and then Another guy who we saw a little bit towards the end of the year last year, he was actually working out with the scout team because he wasn't eligible to play Mm -hmm. last year, is Blaine Toll. And look, this is a kid that has been at Arkansas. He's been at Colorado. 
and now he's he's here at A State. He's going to make a difference on that defensive line. You know, he's saying is he's you send him off the bus first, right? I mean, oh yeah, Coach Keedy would call it pretty in uniform, <laughs> but things got the game to back it up. In King Makuta, you're right. I mean, you know, he was listed as you know he played linebacker at Alabama, but you go back to like his high school recruitment. He's listed as one of the top edge rushers in the country in his high school class. That's why he was listed as an edge rusher. So I'm sure he feels a little bit back at home getting to play there here. Terry on Sudgic, another transfer from Vanderbilt. He was out there, got to see him live for the first time. You look at some of these other guys, and I was interested on that defensive side of the ball to see what it looked like with Kavon Bennett who was very good at defensive end last year, but we knew he was going to make the move to linebacker. This is really a move that I think will be beneficial to the Red Wolves this year, but also help him as far as trying to get to the next level. But he looked good. Saw him line up at linebacker. He was moving around really well. Saw him drop back into coverage some. And... You know, it looks like a good fit there. And he's right next to that Houston transfer, Jordan Carmouche. And I thought those two in that linebacking core, along with some of the other returners, Jaden Harris, Malik Straker, that looked good. And look, you and I talked about it a lot. Second half of the season last year, we saw significant improvement on the defensive side of the ball. It was really, really tough to watch the first six games or so. It was crazy. It went from the absolute you know, weak link on the team to the strength of the team by the end of the season. It was it was kind of crazy to watch. But you see some significant improvements already with some of the guys they brought in. And some other names uh, I wanted to mention. Ahmad Robinson, who was uh, a highly recruited corner out of the St. Louis area. He's already out there getting uh, a lot of reps, and, and he looks good. And then Eddie Smith, another Alabama transfer, is back there at safety and – he looks like he's going to be a difference maker for us as well. So those were some of the good things I saw on the defensive side of the ball. I wanted to see on offense what, what the line looked like because of the guys we lost. Look, we heard a lot last year about McKeelan Thomas, and I know especially towards the end of the year, Coach Jones wanted to get him some reps, and he did. But McKeelan is a guy out of Little Rock Central who he was recruited by several schools and he decided to come here. He's lining up as the left tackle right now. And that's a spot where hopefully he can thrive in the future. And then we've got a new body there at left guard, this Iowa Western transfer, Makai Butler. He's a big dude, 338 pounds at left guard. And then at center, Ethan Miner is a familiar face right next to the right guard, Ernesto Ramirez. And he's an interesting story. Ernie actually went through senior day last year. He wasn't going to come back to use his final year, but he's back on the roster. He decided to come back, and there he is at that right guard position. And it was really nice to see Robert Holmes, who got injured early in the season last year. He was starting at right tackle. And then once he went out, the offensive line really didn't seem – like it was the same, but he was back out there and looked healthy at that spot. Honestly, the way last season unfolded, it's it's easy to sort of forget about Robert Holmes because he went down and there was a lot of season left to go. And but you're right, it's uh, that's a good one to to get back and get on the in that right tackle spot. And happy to see him back and healthy. He was playing well when he got hurt.
uh, everybody wants to know about the quarterbacks. And, you know, James Blackman was out there. Wyatt Beagle. We've seen those two before. And then got our first look at Jackson Daly. And this was the highly touted freshman who kept his commitment, even though he was getting offers from everybody, it seemed. A whole bunch of Big Ten schools were after him. But he was... All Red Wolf all the time. I mean, I, I don't know how many unofficial visits he had, 10 or 12 maybe, yeah. that, that he made with his family down to Jonesboro. But he's been all in from the start. And I think I told you and Philip and I were kind of joking about it. You see a, a left-handed quarterback wearing number 15, big body. He's 6'3". And who do you think of? Well, I know the answer already. It's Tim Tebow. Well, yeah. But, I mean, that that's who you think of when, when you see – a guy that looks like that out there. Now, I'm not saying he's Tim Tebow, but at the same time, it was good to see Jackson Daly out there taking some reps. At running back, Marcel Murray and Lincoln Perry. And, of course, Marcel had gone into the transfer portal, but decided Arkansas State was the best place for him, so he came back. A couple of young guys that I know folks are interested in, Mike Sharp, the freshman out of Pinson, Alabama, and then Jaquez Cross, who's from Fordyce, Mm -hmm. but actually originally went to Purdue and then transferred back here to Arkansas State. It was good to see those two in action. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, there's some talent in that room. You know, Mike Sharp, part of that high school signing class, another guy that's here already, and, uh, is already one of the fastest guys on the team. You know, I talked to Jeff Jones, you know, a few months back, and there's a a time run. The strength staff, the athletic performance staff, does on everybody, and I, it's not just some straight forty or something. It's something different, but it's something a time deal they do. And he was the third fastest time on the team. Hmm. And by the way, one of the guys ahead of him was Marcel Murray. So there's some speed and some uh, power and a little bit of everything in that running back room, it would appear. I really like our tight end group. I mean, I would think if you're looking at position groups, it's going to be tough to to beat this one with you know, Reed oh. Tyler, Emmanuel Stevenson coming back, Seydoux Traore, who we had a great visit with a couple of months ago here on this podcast. Expect him to do big things. And then Miller McCrumbie, who was a – really highly recruited tight end out of McKinney, Texas. He's out there practicing with the team. So uh, I well, think that that is certainly a position of strength. Yeah, when you when you handed me this sheet we're looking at here, kind of our rundown, I, I got to these tight ends. I'm like, holy cow. I mean, like there's – like you have to get creative and find a way to get these guys on the field. <laughs> that tight end room is deep and talented. It is. And then, of course, you know, even with the loss of a guy like Corey Rucker, I think – Everybody feels comfortable that, that we've got some depth at that receiver position. And, you know, Tavalence Hunt being back, Jeff Foreman being back at that, that wide out position. So guys like Kaheem Waleed out there taking reps, Reagan Ely, who looked good mm-hmm. as, as a, a freshman last year after walking on. Of course, you got Adam Jones back, who is coach's son, I, I thought looked good last year he's a part of that receiving core as well so i think we're going to be just fine at that that wide out position and that's been the case for many years now so that was on thursday meanwhile baseball had another tough week they lost at southeast missouri tuesday by the final score of eight to five 
There was, uh, I think we were tied at yep. five in the bottom of the seventh. After trailing five, nothing. Came back, tied it up. Two outs, bottom seven. The bases are loaded. There's a blooper to shallow right. We were playing back. Cooper Trimble's racing in to try to make the catch. And he, he did everything right on the plays, coming in and towards the line. And it's just beyond his reach. And it takes a high bounce. It rolls all the way back to the wall. Ends up being a basis clearing bloop triple. And Simo ends up winning the game eight to five. And then the Cajuns were in town this weekend. And it was the fourth straight opponent to begin conference play that is an RPI top 50 team. Say that again. Say that again. The first four conference opponents for the Red Wolves have all been in the top 50 in the RPI. Texas State, Georgia Southern, Coastal Carolina, and now the Cajuns. Wow. And And by the way, and then the league's about to get better. Oh, my God. Especially with Southern (laughs) Miss coming in here. That's crazy. So, the series didn't start too well. Uh, Fell 10-0 on Friday. I had never seen this, even as a fan much less calling the game, but six of the first eight batters that came to the plate for the Cajuns on Friday night bunted. You know, we talked about Coastal and how good they were playing small ball. The Cajuns kind of take it to another level, and they do everything right. And it's not like they've got this incredible offensive lineup. They just move runners so well. They lead the league in stolen bases. What they did the other night in that Friday game was just an absolute clinic. And what they were doing, they were playing on a slower surface than what they, yep. they normally do. They were playing on grass. They were playing a left-handed pitcher in Justin Medlin, which it's tougher for him to field bunts. He's got to spin around and throw to first. And then, you know, at the same time, he's a little bit bigger pitcher, too. So he's not as quick off the mound, maybe, as some of the other guys. So They were so good Friday, and I know we're spinning forward a little bit, and we can work backwards. I was shocked they didn't go the exact same route on Sunday with the wind 40 mile blowing an hour in wind like blowing crazy. In. You had Carter Holt on the mound for the first time in four weeks. Another big guy. I couldn't, I couldn't believe how little they bunted on Sunday. So the Cajuns win 10 nothing Friday. We'll get to that Sunday game here in a minute. But, but, but Saturday was a game that the Red Wolves could have won. Will Nash was really good. Fantastic. Yep. Turned in a quality start. Went six innings. Gave up just one earned run. Dedrick Kale comes to the plate with two outs in the bottom of the seventh. It's a two-run single to tie it up at three. And it stayed tied at three going into the ninth inning. And two errors in the top of the ninth lead to two unearned runs. And the Cajuns end up winning it five to three. Five errors in that ball game. And it led to four unearned runs and a five to three loss. Yeah. I think I went back. Look, Cajuns had the leadoff man on seven times Saturday. They did. Yeah. And you fought that off and fought off at the time committing three errors. And you had a game tied going to the ninth inning, which you probably had no business being tied going into the ninth inning. But it spoke to the job the pitching staff did. And then sort of same song, second verse Sunday. Yeah. Uh, another five errors on Sunday. And the Red Wolves got off to a good start in this game. They they led 4 nothing. They had scored a run in the second. They scored three times on five hits in the third inning. Looked like things were going, especially with the way Carter Holt made his return to the mound. He hadn't pitched in nearly a month. And, and the thing with Carter, and I was talking with Alan Dunn uh, about this, 
he had an injury that he had never really seen in over 30 years just being around baseball. He had a case of tendonitis in the lower part of his right index finger, his, his pitching hand. It's kept him out of his first three conference starts. So he hadn't pitched since March 13th. He comes back nearly a month later, and he was fantastic uh, on Sunday. He goes four scoreless innings to start the game. And then in the fifth inning, with, with the Red Wolves up 4 nothing, he gives up one earned run but three more unearned because of three errors in the inning, and the Cajuns end up tying the game at four. And listen, I'm just going to have to be honest with the people listening. You and I saw it, and maybe everybody listening to this didn't. When we tell you there were three errors in that inning, let me go one step further. We're talking about one of them was somebody flat out just falling down. Okay? That's mm-hmm. one. And I'll even give you that one because, hey, stuff happens, whatever. The other two, we just got to tell it, the most routine plays in the world. You just scratch your head. How does that stuff happen? And yeah. It, I, and I'm telling I mean, I'm talking about plays those guys make 99 times out of 100, and it just so happens that the other one hit in the same inning. And that's, that's sort of been the story for the Red Wolves. But even with the three airs and three unearned runs in the fifth on Sunday – it's still a tie game, and it stays that way into the bottom of the eighth, and then the Red Wolves have a golden opportunity in the bottom of the eighth. Bottom of the order is up. Seven, eight, and nine all get on base. Bases are loaded, nobody out. Top of the order coming up, and couldn't push a run across. Then you go to extra innings. Cajun score three in the top of the tenth, and they win it seven to yeah. four. And I know that the fans are frustrated. Nobody is more frustrating or frustrated than Tommy Raffo and this coaching staff because they're doing everything they possibly can to try to push the right buttons. But again, when you're allowing five airs a game and giving all these extra outs to the opponents, especially when you're playing all these good teams, you, yeah. you're not going to win games. I mean, you we talked about it before we got started here. You you committed 10 errors in the span of 14 innings and gave up seven unearned runs in games you still had a chance to win. Both tied going to the ninth. One of them went extra innings. Despite the fact you commit 10 errors in 14 innings and gave up seven unearned runs, you still gave yourself a chance to win. It's just bless their hearts. One won't fall for them. And Mitch Mathis did the ESPN – Plus broadcasts of me this weekend, and I, I enjoy whether it's Todd Baumgartner or Mitch, either one. It, it's fun for me. But they both played at Arkansas State, and Mitch played on a team that lost 22 of its last 23 games, lost 15 in a row, won a game, and lost the last seven of the year. And he talked about sort of mentally what the how even if you got in a game and something was going good, you you almost can't fight off the notion that you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I know something bad's going to happen. When's it going to happen? And he said that, that that's a tough mentality to break out of. Well, and look, that was to end the season. There's still 22 games left in this season. So can the Red Wolves find some way to right the ship these final six weekends of conference play and start winning some games? But as of right now, they're sitting at 5-24 and 24 overall, still winless in conference play at 0-12 and 12 and uh, they'll be back in action this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at Little Rock. We'll talk about that coming up in just a little bit. But we're going to take a timeout. And when we come back, we're going to be joined in studio by the new head volleyball coach 
at Arkansas State. Brian Gerwig joins us next. When we play today, we win something bigger than ribbons or trophies. We win our tomorrows. Wherever we play, wherever we fight, wherever we overcome odds, we're winning our way. Simmons Bank is committed to supporting women athletes in the communities we serve and are proud to be an official sponsor of A-State Women's Athletics. Not just for a season, but for a winning future. Seasons are short, but fierce is forever. Simmons Bank, member FDIC. And we welcome you back into the Second to None podcast presented by Simmons Bank. Pleased to be joined in studio today by the ninth head coach in A-State Volleyball history, it's Brian Gerwig. How you doing, Coach? Uh, doing well today. Been a busy weekend recruiting, but happy to be here this morning. Well, it's uh, it's good to have you here, and we kind of want to use this as a chance for people to get to know your story a little bit, and kind of want to start at the top. Where are you originally from, and when did volleyball become a part of your life? Well, from Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, moved there when I was about six, and Man, I was in grade school when I started playing volleyball. And to be honest, uh, the volleyball practice was right before basketball practice. So I would be hanging out in the cafeteria and waiting for basketball practice and volleyball would be going on. And so I just kind of started playing. And before you know it, it was uh, high school. I got cut as a freshman and I had a coach that really believed in me. And I think that was the first moment that I really knew the impact that a coach would have on somebody's life and put me on a club team and took me from the player that I was to the player that I eventually became. So I really, I really owe, I think my coaching career to him. For people that, that may not know, what are the the sort of spots in the country, the areas in the country geographically where, you know, boys or men's volleyball is pretty prevalent? Chicago's huge. Uh, I mean, that's a lot of the the talent comes out of there. There's some size that really comes out of the Chicago area. California is great. I mean, those kids grow up playing very young on the beach and and they're really talented players but typically it's that i-65 corridor and then getting over to the west coast is kind of where where men's volleyball comes from around the country now you kind of got on the fast track as far as your coaching career but when you came in today you said hey you've already had a lot of stops as far as different careers already and you paid your way through college you went to school at western kentucky but You had to pay your way through. What were some of the things you did to do that? Oh, man, I've I've driven a semi, did that for a couple of years, drove cars at an auto auction. Um, I've bagged groceries. I worked for a, a bike shop, bike repair shop on bicycles. My senior year of college, I went and did a Disney uh, internship with Walt Disney World down in Florida. And that was really the moment where it kind of it changed for me and that life took a different direction. And I realized that, you know, you can build a career and really uh, impact people's lives. You're too tall to be in most character suits. So what was your gig? Oh man, I sold merchandise in uh, Hollywood studios and started as a college intern. And by the time I left, I had a full-time job offer to stay there, but I just decided that getting, getting a degree was way more important to me. So I came back and finished. And I want you to go back to part of that too, because you were telling us you're in college and you're in pay your way through college. So you're going to school during the week and driving a semi on the weekend. Mm Mm-hmm. Tell me that story, man. I mean, I kind of had to deal with my parents. They had some money saved for me to go to college, so they would pay for tuition, but like room and board, anything extracurricular, whatever I wanted my car, I had to pay for. And that life lesson was very important. It's been ingrained in me that working hard my whole life is something that you're going to do and you wake up and you're ready to go every single day. So I owe a lot to them, but it was 
didn't matter where we were going, driving on the weekends with ice truck and it'd be hundreds of miles every weekend. But I, I really enjoyed it. When did you decide coaching was the route you wanted to go? As I kind of said in, in high school, I had a coach that really believed in me and I got cut my freshman year of high school from the volleyball team. I was like five, eight, five, nine. I don't blame him at all. And I grew between my freshman and sophomore year and was still trying to figure out coordination and all that, but came back as a sophomore, made varsity. And it just really showed me that coaches have a huge impact. And I thought after college, uh, I was a graphic designer. So I had a couple degrees that helped me work in the professional world and enjoyed that, but I just didn't find too much value. And I was coaching at night and part of the club world and being a high school varsity head coach and was really burning the candle at both ends. And I just knew that coaching was where my mind was. It's what I wanted to do. And so I gave, you know, Travis Hudson a call at Western Kentucky and said, Hey, can I come back? I spent four years there in undergrad um, as a student manager and a practice player and just the, the little roles that really make a program go. And then he welcomed me back as a volunteer and came in and got to do this scouting and help with travel and coaching players and just learned what this side, the coaching side of uh, sport really looks like. Your high school and club coaching them with the girls? Uh, no, I've been on the guys side and the girls side. So I helped start a guys club back in Louisville, Kentucky out of Kiva, which is a very established women's club. But we helped start the men's side of that. We had 14 and 16 year olds that were playing and that was a lot of fun. But when I got back into the high school game, I went back to my alma mater, which was Trinity High School. So Coach Pat Bowles is the coach that I keep referencing. He was the, the guy that really changed my life. And now um, I had the opportunity to go back and be the head coach there to start my coaching career. Now, how old were you when that happens? Where You were just out of college, right? So 22, 23? Yeah, I think I was 23 and 24. Um, I was 25 when I started my college coaching stint, um, which is a little bit later because a lot of people do get in straight out of college. But um, I spent three years, three and a half years working in the graphic design industry. It was something my parents thought, you got the degree, let's try it. And so I did. And I just coaching was calling me back. And you won a state championship, yep. right? As a high school head coach. So you already had a state championship and then you go back to Western Kentucky, right? Yes, sir. And then we, um, we had a great season at Western Kentucky. Made it all the way to the NCAA tournament. It was the first time that Western Kentucky advanced in the NCAA tournament. Um, we ended up losing to Stanford that next match, which <laughs> they're no joke. They're top four in the country pretty yeah. much every single year. And I learned a lot of lessons from Travis that year about how to treat people um, just the relationship side of coaching. Uh, he's just an unbelievable coach and it's just ingrained in him of how you treat people, how you communicate with people. And I learned a lot. It was years ago, but I still remember all those lessons. So your life impacted by a high school coach, you're coaching high school and club. It's been boys and girls. What was the draw then to go in, you know, the college coaching route when you established it as a high school coach? A lot of people have told me I couldn't do it. And I enjoy that competition. Like I enjoy that challenge of people saying, no way, man, I, you didn't play college ball. Um, you weren't a highly recruited person. You, you're a male and being a male, getting into a female sport is, is very tough. And I love to prove people wrong. And it just, I kept focusing on exactly what I wanted and it's led me to where I am today. Well, it led you after Western Kentucky to go to George Washington for four years. And then you were at Arkansas State for the 2017 and 2018 seasons. You joined David Rear's staff, and he already had things kind of going here at Arkansas State at the time. When were you first introduced to him? His first year at Arkansas State was my volunteer year at Western Kentucky. So that was back in 2012. 
Travis had this agreement or this thing about him that any time any other head coach came in the building, he would invite them into his office. And then he would call me and say, Brian, come over and meet whoever the coach happened to be. So I met Dave his very first year here and we just bonded. I got his cell phone number. He got mine. And we just started texting back and forth and asking questions. And there was simple things that as a young coach that I just don't know. And it might be embarrassed to ask Travis or didn't want to ask those questions or just getting a second opinion. And Dave was very consistent about getting back to me and just building that relationship. And so, yeah, we've, we've been friends for quite some time now. So going over 10 years. Then you go to GW. Yep. So when Rear's spot comes open, Tristan Johnson goes to Alabama, that spot comes open. Then what do you think of when he reaches out to you? That was actually the second time he had contacted me. So when Tristan first came up, um, Dave and I had talked. It wasn't real serious because I'd just been at GW for two years. I'd promised my last head coach I was there to build a program. And you can kind of see that through the trajectory of the program that we were there recruiting and building something very special that was there. So I was thrilled when Dave called me. I knew that after four years being at GW that my head coach was looking to get out. Her husband lived in a different city, different state. So she was looking to make a move and they were waiting on me to find a job. So I was very thankful that that was a really good situation, a great time. Um, I'd interviewed the year before, but the fit just wasn't right. And I was really looking for a head coach that would help me move my career in the right direction. And I knew when Dave called, it was a very simple conversation of just get me to Jonesboro. I want to see town and get the feel to make sure, because I trust him with, with everything in my life. I trust him. I know what he's going to do, but I really want to make sure that this was a place I could live, a place where I wanted to be. So he brought me in in December and, you know, before January 1, I think I was hired, ready to go. You say you wanted to make sure it was a place you wanted to be. So what were your first impressions of Jonesboro and Arkansas State? It's interesting because before I came here as an assistant, I was in Washington, D.C., big city. (laughs) It's compact. There's a lot going on. It's busy. And when you're younger, you're a little distracted. You think that's the fun thing and you want to do that. But I knew that I wanted to build a successful volleyball program. And that's something Dave's done over and over again. He did it at Blinn and then he was doing it here at Arkansas State. We did it at Houston. And I got the small town feel like coming here and being able to relax and not drive a thousand miles an hour and have traffic and big difference between DC and Jonesboro. I'm and sure. then Houston and Jonesboro, when I came yeah. back mm. and my first week in town, um, I'm staying with some really close friends in town. And I told them I haven't flashed my lights or honked my horn or yelled at somebody <laughs> once in a week. And we'll just it, spend a little bit more time on Red Wolf. And, well, you, know. See, you know, like, in, cause you get here cause you were here for a while, but that, like you know, people think, and I'm one of them. Friday afternoon, like Red Wolf Boulevard is just unbearable. No, not at no. all. See, we we got this saying in Houston that Houston's an hour away from Houston, so you can you can go anywhere. Like my church was about nine or ten miles from where I lived, and if I didn't set aside 45 minutes to get there, I would never make it on time. And here, I mean, that's like a 15 minute drive, no big deal. So it's a whole different <laughs> level of traffic. I've driven down Red Wolf at 5 p.m. and it is not that bad, people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get here and, and you coach two years as an assistant at Arkansas State. And want to mention Mitchell Gladstone's article that uh, he had about you once you were hired here at Arkansas State. Uh, a few weeks ago in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, a good article, and it kind of told the story 
of you and your wife, Molly. Mm-hmm. And while you were here at Arkansas State the first time, that's when you met her. So if you can, kind of take us through the story of how you guys met. Yeah. So we were playing in the NIVC tournament. Uh, Arkansas State was. And we were down um, at Tulane, down in New Orleans. And we just didn't have the uh, the great match. Like it, it, The team was very talented. We were really predicted to do well in the NIVC tournament. And we thought this is it. We're going to go. And it just didn't work. So we came back. Uh, we played Thursday. We came back Friday and I had a good friend that lives up towards Paragold and um, it's the Wynn family. Love them. And they, uh, we had a tournament down in Conway, an adult tournament. And he was like, man, you're back. You promised me if you were here, let's go. And I just, I fought it and fought it and fought it. And um, he picked me up at like five o'clock in the morning and we drove down there, played in this tournament. And I met Molly that day. So what time did you got back the night before? I mean, you got back late, I'm sure, from New Orleans. It was in the evening because this was, we drove all day on Friday. So we played Thursday night and then drove, I mean, it must've been nine or 10 hours to get up here. And so, I mean, I'm sure it was like seven, 8 PM. And I was just, I was so tired. And well, the volunteer assistant at the time was Dylan Ross, who's now the head coach of Loris college. And he was living with me. And for some reason, you know, God was just calling me that day. And I was just like, you know, I'll go like, I don't want to go. I'm tired, but we'll go. So uh, I'm very thankful for all those people that drug me and said, let's go. You have hmm. to go with us. So it got there and, and was very lucky to meet Molly that day. And probably made a fool of myself, but ran across the gym when we were all warming up, just hanging out and nobody really knew anybody. And I I just ran across the gym and introduced myself to her. And I mean, the rest is kind of history. So it's, it was, uh, honestly one of the best days of my life. Were were you that kind of guy before that would just run up to girls to meet them like that? Or no, no? I, I do have a big personality. I'm fairly loud and fill a room, but it is not really my style to run across to gym and go introduce myself to somebody. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I honestly thought she was dating somebody else in the building at the time. So I was kind of cautious about embarrassing myself too much, but she stayed and watched me the rest of the day. I was lucky enough to win the tournament. So I think that probably helped me a little bit and, uh, yeah, I exchanged cell phone numbers and we, we didn't stop talking for the rest of our relationship. It's not something you'd normally would do you said so why'd you do it in arkansas it's hard to find somebody that's six foot one brown hair blue eyes that's athletic (laughs) um and when she walked in that gym i i just couldn't stop watching her so i just thought you know i might as well might as well go across and go say hello now she was in coaching too correct yep and we had actually kind of crossed paths yes at harding and um we had been there the season prior but either she wasn't with the team it was our teams had played each other before, but we had not really met. And then, yeah, it was, everybody asked that, oh, you met in coaching, like you must've met as coaches. And no, we met as like single adult players. It was uh-huh. it was completely away from the coaching world. So uh, probably can kind of hop back and forth here, but because we'll talk about then all of a sudden Coach Rear getting the Houston job. And obviously we'll talk about that from a couple of different angles, but from your relationship standpoint, all of a sudden, I mean, I'm sure that provides a, Sort of a crossroads here. Yeah, it does. Uh, that was so tough. Kind of, what was the, the what was the status of your guys' relationship when Coach got the Houston job, and you know you're going to go, and kind of what happens from there? Well, when he got the job, I applied for the head coaching mm-hmm. job here, and I really wanted it, and I thought this was the perfect fit, not only for myself but with Molly, and things were pretty serious. So, yeah, we it, she went to Tarleton, which is down in Stephenville, Texas, and I went to University of Houston, so we were about four and a half hours apart. Um, and we put a lot of miles on her car and I got to give her a lot of credit because she she made the drive 80% of the time and really 
uh, made sure that our relationship was in, in the right spot. So it was, I probably made, I don't know, three or four trips up there within our nine months of doing distance. And she made the trip a lot more than that. So it was, it worked, we made it work. And, um, I mean, all good things are worth the wait. So we fought hard to make sure that that relationship was in a good spot, even though we were doing distance. So there was no question then when you knew you were going to Houston, it wasn't going to pan out here that she said, I'm in, I'm, I'm going to find a job in Texas too. Oh, absolutely. And it was still, I mean, I think we were like seven or eight months into the relationship. It was still fairly new. So we knew it was something really good. We just didn't quite know how serious it was going to be and what this distance was going to do to the relationship. But it, I mean, it worked out. It was a great, a great situation. And I mean, it was kind of unfortunate. Her, her time at Tarleton was just cut short and it just wasn't the right situation for her. But then a job at uh, Houston Baptist opened up, which in the coaching world is an absolute blessing to be able to both have coaching jobs in the same city. It was absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. And she worked for Trent down there. Trent's an amazing guy. He was, he treated her extremely well. And that was something that maybe it wasn't there in the previous job, but I think that she really felt the love and support as she came to Houston. So she gets to Houston. You guys eventually decide you're going to get married. Mm -hmm. So, Take us through, and I know we're getting to the tough stuff at this point, but she eventually was diagnosed with cancer. When did you find out that news? So when she moved to Houston, I mean, we, we were living a very Christian relationship, loved each other dearly, had a great relationship with God individually, and were able to put him at the center of our lives. And I asked her dad very early on for her hand. I mean, it might have been five months, six months before we actually got engaged. Uh, and I waited because our first date was at Harding University under, they put the Christmas lights up. Um, normally it's in December and that was one of our first dates. And so I waited until then, and it was in November, November 6th to be exact, when they turned the Christmas lights back on. And so I waited and then brought her all the way back up here, created a very elaborate lie to make sure that she didn't know what was going on and then <laughs> proposed when we made it up here. And then we made the decision very early on that we COVID wasn't going to affect our marriage. We weren't going to wait and we were going to have a, a small family wedding out on her property. And so she picked the date. We wanted to do it in May because that is coaches is our dead period. That's our quiet time to be able to kind of get life in order. And we went full steam ahead. And there wasn't really any bumps in the road until we got into late April and then May. And um, she wasn't feeling well and had some things going on. So she went and got some tests and um, the doctor called us on May 13th. So we got married May 15th, so two days before our wedding and said, you have cancer. And I vividly remember that day of mm. just, I was setting up the tent and lights and I was there with one of my really good friends and he I'm actually going to his wedding here in another about 10 days. And I, Molly came running across the yard crying and I had no idea what was going on. And, you know, politely asked him to kind of disappear for a second. And we just sat there and cried and cried and cried. And we didn't know at that time, like how serious it was, but we knew nobody wants to hear that word cancer, especially at 27. Like she was young and healthy and it just blindsided us as it would anybody. And, yeah. but we made that decision right then and there, like, even my friend's name was Lucas and Lucas didn't know. We told her parents and we called my parents and told them and we said, that's it. And we're not going to tell everybody. We don't want cancer to define our story, our wedding. We want everybody to be there and be happy and celebrate us and our relationship. And I remember telling her that 
This is a bump in the road. This is one little moment that God's going to get us through and we will be here and we'll be here together and we're going to fight for this. But I want to look back and remember the happy times and not look back and say, wow, everybody's pitying us because of what has just been told to us. So we kept it quiet until after the wedding and really celebrated that day and made sure that everybody knew how much we loved them and tried to spend time with everybody. But that was, as you can probably tell, that it takes me back. That was a, it was yeah. a tough week, very so tough week. You guys sitting there, I guess you're saying six, seven people knew. And you did that, you said mostly for almost to the benefit of everybody else, that they could come and celebrate your guys' relationship. For you two, how'd that day go? Did it go the way you wanted it to? Were you able to, I mean, can you put that on the back burner and, and focus on getting married? The one moment, I think we were both very able to relax and forget. But the guy that married us, his name's David, and David was our counselor, I guess you could say. he. You have to get kind of marriage counseling as you come up to get married. You guys know this. And he was part of our church. Him and his wife, Molly and I wanted to model our marriage off of his marriage because he has an amazing family, uh, an amazing faith, just amazing, just everything about them. They want to be outdoors. Um, they raise their children the right way. So we wanted them to, to marry us. And we told David afterwards, but when you get to the part where you say in sickness and health, there was a moment where he kind of paused there and he didn't know. And Molly and I are there like squeezing each other's hands because we knew, we knew what we were about to get into. And we both took those vows very seriously. And we knew that we are through this in this together through sickness and health. That's, that's what we are saying to each other. And I think that moment had a little different impact than what other people have, because it was, we knew the challenges that were right ahead of us. And we really wanted to focus on celebrating that day. But besides that one moment, I think we both were able to relax and really enjoy the day. And people came back to me afterwards and at the reception and days later, we're like, you know, when we announced it, people were like, we knew something was up. We knew we could feel, we could see that you weren't your typical self, but we figured it was just the stress of like everything that was going on. And, you know, it was when I was like, yeah, we were, we were battling a lot already. And I didn't want that day to be tainted. Mm -hmm. I wanted to really make sure that we protected that day for us, that we could look back. We have some amazing pictures. Um, we had a, I was blessed enough to have the same photographer for the engagement and the wedding. And Asha was great. She knew us extremely well and was very respectful and knew kind of what was going on, but we didn't really tell her what was going on. But God blessed us with the most beautiful day and amazing sunset. And he, she captured some pictures that are, worthy of a magazine. It was amazing. And I think those pictures were, were not only a blessing, but it helped us get through. It helps me get through now. I go through them all the time and I'm just remembering that beauty of that day before we got into some, some nasty, nasty times. You didn't let cancer define that day. Absolutely not. You get through the wedding Tell us what type of cancer it was and when did you realize just how serious this cancer was that you were dealing with? Yeah, we, uh, we canceled our honeymoon. We it felt terrible. We had to lie to everybody because they want to hear what you're doing and where you're going. And nobody really knew it wasn't their business of that we were canceling it. So we did. And we went straight back to Houston. Uh, we stayed, let's see, we got married on Saturday, stayed Sunday and then at her parents' house, and then Monday morning, I think we took off and headed. By Tuesday, we were in the doctor's office. Spent, I don't know, eight or nine days 
with doctors getting more scans, getting more tests, confirming what they knew. And then by Memorial Day weekend, she had her first bout of chemotherapy. Uh, it was a neuroendocrine tumor, neuroendocrine cancer, started in her colon. Um, and by the time they found it, she was already stage four. It had already spread to her liver. Uh, and we thought, they thought, you know, it. there's many different variants of a neuroendocrine tumor and 75, 80% of them are a very boring, bland tumor that you, they can get around with can or with chemotherapy and some other treatments. And they were really confident in the beginning that this was something that she was young and she would be able to get through the chemotherapy and they might have a chance to at least slow it down. And I don't think in the first couple of weeks we were pretty naive and we weren't really thinking this was the end. But it really was. It was the beginning of the end. And I appreciate the doctors for not coming to us instantly and saying she's terminal. And we went through the fight, but things didn't work out. So uh, obviously this is May when you get married and then eventually you get in to volleyball season at Houston. I'm sure volleyball is one of the furthest things from your mind at that point. You had to miss a significant portion of the season. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's you, you'll give up anything for the people sure. you love. Anything. So I'm, I'm appreciative of my boss, Dave, because he, he let me do whatever I wanted. And same with Trent. Like, <clears throat> sorry. We had unlimited time off, and volleyball was that distraction. Luckily, I could walk into practice whenever I wanted. I could watch games, but it was, it was tough. And. I'm just thankful for both bosses to be able to like help us get through that because you, I mean, any normal job, people can say, man, we need this. We're going into season and you know, they could be, it's selfish isn't the right word, but they could, they could not understand what's going on and say, Hey, we got to win. We're going to have a good team. Like I need you to be here. And I played a big role on that team, but I also know that like the way I coach, the way we do things, my kids don't need me to be there. I'm there for a support role. We train them through the season. They know what we are asking of them. Dave's a phenomenal coach. He could handle it. And he he very much so was like, Brian, go deal with Molly. Like, go focus on this. And if you can be here, be here. But don't go out of your way to be here because family matters. Family matters to him so much. And it matters to me. And I think that they both had the right reaction. They had the opportunity to say, hey, we're admin blame it on anything of we need to find a new coach um anything that happens to be but both of our admins were super supportive they we both kept our jobs kept our paychecks and to be honest the biggest thing was keeping health insurance because mm. that that yeah. can get expensive very very quickly so the arkansas state job comes open again yep a job you wanted three years ago quite honestly that first pursuit of it i'm guessing didn't get a whole lot of traction it didn't at the end of this process coach rare says Brian was ready three years ago. I would be inclined to probably agree with that. But when you find out it's open again, what's the first thing you think? I mean, I contacted Amy as fast as I could. Dave really supported me again through the process. And I think having the connections in town helped a lot. And I think three years ago, I was ready. I was ready from a strategy, from a volleyball perspective of, I know how to recruit. I know how to order gear. I know the basics, the the framework that makes a really good head coach. I understand that. I've worked from some phenomenal head coaches my whole coaching career. The thing that changed over the last three years was the the mental, the emotional side, the maturity that came with dealing with Molly in that situation. 
my faith grew exponentially in the past three years. And Molly had a lot to do with that. And what I can offer kids now is so much greater than what I could have three years ago. Interesting, because at your press conference, I ask you basically the same question. You guys thought you were ready three years ago. I ask you, how are you more ready now? And your answer, I don't know if you ever talked about volleyball. You started the answer to that question with, well, the last year of my life's been tough. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole way you, uh, that's that day, the day you got this job publicly, that's sort of the angle you took it, how you were more ready now than even three years ago. Yep, absolutely. I wish this experience upon nobody. It, it was tough. And there will come a day where every one of us has to be without our significant other. And maybe it's only a day. I hope it's only hours for all of us. But what you learn by losing somebody, by going through all of that from a family perspective, the the support I got from my team, from the community, from my church, from volleyball back in Houston, you can't replicate that. Even watching it from afar, you don't understand what I was going through and the difficulties and the growth that was happening. And all of that experience just will help me connect with my athletes right now and understand what they're going through, be empathetic of a lot of things that these kids have to deal with, but also being able to give them my experience and share my story. Because where you spun that answer forward was that what you went through probably helped you recalibrate how you see things as a coach because it probably helped you maybe kind of re-realize that it was more about building the relationships than it was about creating volleyball players oh absolutely and the kids you can get out there there's two ways to get them to go you can get out there and yell and scream at them and make them do everything that you want and they'll do it just because they're scared of you or you can love them up and explain to them why you want to do what you want to do and really coach them through the process and once they buy in they're going to do it forever and then they're not only going to do it because they love you but they will do it and then they will train the next kid that comes in and they will explain to them the difference between myself and other coaches that they've had in the past. And it it really is, it's fun. I really enjoy this group and building this program. Um, It will be about them. It's a hundred percent about them. I'm just there to be their biggest cheerleader and support them. And through every aspect of life, not just volleyball, they, they deal with so much that a lot of people don't see off the court. And I'm here to support them 110% the whole time. Brad mentioned the press conference just a minute ago. Molly had passed away in October. Mm -hmm. You get named as the head coach on March 15th. When you're up there being announced as the head coach of Arkansas State, what's going through your mind? It's excitement. It's a little sadness because I wish she was here. Being this close to family is great. And having her family, they're an hour and a half away. She's an hour and 15 minutes away, so... I can see her all the time. It's great. At um, Forest City, is that right? Yeah, yes, sir. Okay. Just she's a little bit outside of Forest City. They're in um they're technically in Haynes, Arkansas. They're between Mariana and Forest City. Um and man, I've seen them a ton. I love it. My dog's out there right now. He's running around. It's so much excitement because is Dave will tell you in the past five to six years, there have been thousands of times where he's told me no and you can't do this or you know we can't run that because and we, we always explain things as coaches of like you know there's things that I see differently than him and I would love to try this and love to try that and I'm just so excited to now put my brand of volleyball out there and just show the rest of the country the things that I've learned from from Travis in the beginning from Mo and from Dave and 
a lot of coaches around the country. I, I've talked to Kelly Sheffield up at Wisconsin fairly frequently and a lot of my friends and mentors um, across the country that have just impacted me as a coach and changed the way I see things. And I'm just excited now to pour 100% into these kids and watch them go. You saw this program and were part of this program when it was in a really good place mm-hmm. a few years ago. What can this program at Arkansas State become? The sky's the limit. It is 100% up to these kids of what they want to draw as the limit. And I fully believe that we as humans limit ourselves quite a bit. And there's, it's natural. It's natural to say, oh, we can't do this and we can't do that. And I'm here to tell you there, there's no mountain we can't climb. And being in the NCAA tournament and advancing in the NCAA tournament and getting to the point where winning is the standard getting to the point where we show up every day, we compete every day and the results will follow. But we, that's the, the message in the gym will always be that we want to win every single drill, every single day, whether it's a serving drill, whether it's a passing drill, and you might not be beating somebody else, but you'll be beating yourself from yesterday and convincing them that it's possible is going to be one of my my biggest goals and my biggest achievements in the next probably year or two because we'll be good next year. It won't be I'm not waiting and I don't need I'm not one of these coaches that needs my kids and I need to recruit you. I don't care. I will take the kids that are in front of me right now and we will be a darn good program next year. You went after this job 3 years ago mm-hmm. and then 3 years later you, you get it and you said this is the only head coaching job I've ever applied for. Yep. Why is that? Why did you both? Why had you not gone after another one? When do you think that might have changed? And why was it this one? Fit as a head coach is really important. Um, you can come into a job and on paper it looks great, and three years later you can be getting fired. You got to have the support of the admin. You got to have the support of the community. You have to have a vision. Uh, you have to be able to coach and be able to bring the kids in under your wing. And taking the wrong job will sideline my career. And I know what this place has to offer. I know the success we've had in the past. I know how to sell it. I know how to recruit it. I know a lot of people in town and this job was cookie cutter for me. And I could see it from the outside. The only question I ever had was with having a new AD coming in and saying, okay, what are you about? Because if we don't have the same vision, it would be very hard for me. And I know that the athletic director specifically has a lot of impact over every program. And I really wanted to make sure that our visions uh, were the same. And if they were, I knew, I know what I can do here. We've done it before. We've been successful here before. And I mean, that's hard to sell in other programs if they haven't been, if they've never won, you can't go to kids and say, man, we used to be good, or this is what I'm going to do. They're going to say, yeah, sure. But there's always that, but, and with here, I can look at kids and say, look, we've already been the NCAA tournament. We've already won conference. Look at what we did here. It is. We're going to do it again. Come help me. And it's already working this weekend. I've been on phone calls nonstop recruiting all weekend. So I'm very excited about the future of this program. And I knew, you know, head coaching opportunities are rare and especially being a male in this sport. This is, you know, a lot of ADs are looking for females and this just everything lined up. It's a place I want to be a community I love and believe in. And I really feel like building this back is it's not a matter of time. It's going to happen. And I think next year we're going to be, we'll be a whole different program than what we were the year before. And I'm excited for it. Well, your story, yours and Molly's story, very emotional, 
inspiring as well. And just you opening up, it can't be easy for you, but thank you for coming in and, mm-hmm. and sharing this story with us and couldn't be more thrilled for you to be here at Arkansas State. No, I appreciate you guys for having me. And this is, uh, this is just the start. All the work got me to that, the first interview. And it's just the start. And we've, we've got a lot of work ahead of us, but I hope to be doing this a whole lot more and bringing the kids in here and talking about wins and the successes that they're finding both on and off the court. So I'm really excited about the future of this program. That's A-State's Brian Gerwig joining us here on the Second to None podcast presented by Simmons Bank. More to come right after this. Your first home is like this dream. The day you walk in, the sun seems to shine more brightly. The ceilings, they just seem taller. And you'll never fix that creaky floorboard because it sounds like comfort. What a hug would sound like if it made a sound. And that's when you realize you're home. Really, really home. Realize your dream with a home loan from Simmons Bank. Dreams realized. SimmonsBank.com. Member FDIC, equal housing lender, subject to credit approval. Wrapping things up here on the Second to None podcast presented by Simmons Bank. Thanks again to Brian Gerwig joining us. And, uh, you know, I know that conversation's not easy. But uh, for him to open up the way he does, that story, his story, such a big part of who he is and he wants people to hear that story no matter how tough it is you can tell he's confident as far as the vision that he has for the future yeah. of a state volleyball we talked to him for 40 minutes there and talked about all the stuff he had to deal with you know he never mentioned one time that the, he or molly either one for that matter ever sat and asked you know why me why us why is this happening to us not one time did he say anything like that came up Again, like you, I appreciate him coming in and being open and honest, but but he has embraced the fact that that's part of his story and a part that is that he's going to tell. And and uh, like I said, I'm, I'm thrilled to have him back part of this volleyball program. Yeah, and, and Faith, such a big part uh, of that story as well. And that, that really comes across and, you know, kind of look back at, at the weekend and, and Scotty Scheffler and how outspoken he is about – his faith after that Masters win. And you can tell he's got a different kind of perspective than what you hear from most professional athletes. I think you can kind of compare that to Brian Gerwig because he has this very different perspective than what you're going to hear from anybody else. Yeah, that's probably a good comparison with uh, Scotty Scheffler who sat there after he won the Masters and told the media room and the whole world as a result that he woke up on Sunday morning and broke down crying because he didn't think he could handle what was about to probably be coming. And his wife said, you know, it was his wife that told him, what do you mean you can't handle it? You're not the one putting yourself in that spot. And it was a chance to kind of talk about his faith. So cool stuff there and obviously great stuff from Coach Gerwig. The A-State bowling team saw their season come to an end this past week. They went up to Michigan, competed in the Lansing Regional they made it to the mega match of the regional, but lost to Vanderbilt. But uh, again, congratulations to Justin Kostick and the bowling team for another great season and making it to their 14th straight NCAA tournament. Yeah, they got to the yeah the regional championship match, coming from behind to beat Youngstown State first, then dropped a, a match to Vanderbilt, then actually end up landing against. Youngstown State again and beat them again to get to Vanderbilt. But uh, you know, Vanderbilt, the, the number three seed going in. Arkansas State was the fifth rated RPI team going in. And 
the match was that close, as you would think it would be, with a three and a five seed going at it for a trip to the Final Four, but Vanderbilt was able to get out of there. A-State baseball is back in action this week, and this is one thing uh, the Sun Belt went to here in the last handful of years. On Easter weekend, they play Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and I think the Sun Belt was one of the first leagues to really do it, and everybody else across the country, or at least most other conferences, have kind of followed suit now to where they don't play on Easter Sunday, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. And I do want to mention, you know, a guy who I know is greatly admired, still in the Sun Belt, and and by Tommy Raffo and you know, Jay Walker, our, our buddy down in Lafayette, uh, who we got to hang out with this weekend. Tony Robichaux was really outspoken. The the legendary head coach of the Cajuns who passed away here in the last couple of years. I think he was a big part of moving Easter weekend to a Thursday, Friday, Saturday series and he was another guy that was really outspoken about Mm -hmm. his faith so thursday at six friday at four and then saturday at one the red wolves will take on little rock it will be the first time a state plays a non top 50 rpi opponent in conference play last matchup with the trojans of sunbelt members that's right i know this isn't something we were going to talk about here but speaking of little rock news out here in the past week that it looks like the A-State Little Rock series will continue in men's basketball for the foreseeable future. A non-conference agreement has has come about. Yeah, no big surprise there. I mean, both sides, at least from an administrative standpoint, both sides talked about wanting it. I would imagine you know, both coaching staffs, when you got down to it, it's an easy game to sure. get on the schedule. So why not? Let's go. Administrative, probably the... <laughs> key part of that all right um we've reached the end of this episode it's been a good one but uh, anything you need to no man i'm good today fume about here let's go you're good yep no sense in griping i don't even know what to gripe about we got it all out last week i think <laughs> maybe so uh, thanks again to brian gerwig for coming in and joining us today for brad i'm matt you've been listening to the second to done podcast presented by simmons bank